All right, let's open our Bibles. Uh, they should probably fall open to Psalm 15. This is the uh, fourth week and the last week that we're in Psalm 15. Um, as we have divided it up into those um, five ethics, basically, that um, are, are expected out of those who um, will dwell in the holy hill of the Lord, as the question leads, who can abide in the Lord's tent, who can dwell on his holy hill? And then David goes on to tell us what that person looks like, the characteristics, the ethics of those who uh, can achieve it. And it's not as if this e these ethics get us there, remember. These, this is the way the person who has been changed by grace lives. It's not as if they lived in order to get grace. They already have it. This is the expectation of those for us in the New Testament times are changed by Jesus Christ. So if you're able, would you stand with me? And I will read Psalm 15. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you and ask your hand of blessing upon us. Open our eyes, open our hearts, that we might hear, that we might apply, and we might live your word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So Psalm 15, it is a psalm of David. O Lord, who may abide in your tent, who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against a friend. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. <clears throat> and so far we've uh, examined four indicators of those who uh, can climb God's holy hill, the, the evidence in their lives, character, conversations, companions, and commitments. And we're going to do like Part two of commitments today. Uh, remember, uh, they're all C's, and that just kind of happened that way. I don't usually do that, but uh, we're going to finish it. As I said, we're going to look a little bit more at commitments. And then our final indicator deals with cash, another C. Imagine that. So commitments. Do we have integrity? Integrity is defined as a person who keeps his oath at all times and is faithful even when it hurts even when it hurts. Um, now, no one has much trouble keeping a promise when it doesn't cost them anything. Yeah, I'll do that. But when suddenly the things change and it becomes costly for us, do we keep our commitments? Or does our oath or promise change? What if it costs us more money? Do we renegotiate? Or do we keep our word? Uh, God approves of people who keep their oaths. He swears to his own hurt. He does not change. His yes is yes. His no is no. And the question really comes down to, can we be trusted? Does the world look upon those who believe and proclaim the things of Christ? Do they look upon us as trustworthy? Do they look upon us and say, yes, that, that person who says they are a believer, says they, they trust in the Lord, they keep their word. When you say you're going to do something, do you do it? Now, David was a man who talked, he talks about a man who is faithful in everything that he does. 
Now, as I said earlier, we had a wedding yesterday, and you can see the great, the great flowers. It was a beautiful time, of course, a beautiful bride. Um, and and they, they come here, and they make promises to one another. And in a wedding, we, it's more of a covenant, okay, because it's not just the promises are not groom to bride and bride to groom. They make those promises, but they make them here in front of the Lord. And in front of the witnesses as well. It is a public proclamation, a public promise. And those promises, uh, you know, many of us made those same promises. And some days those are hard promises to keep. But yet they're what we make. And yet they require of us effort and they require of us to change actually in order to keep those promises. They're meant to be lifelong promises. So in this context, do you keep your contract? Do you keep your promise? Do you do what you say when it comes time for you to do it? Now, a man who keeps his commitments, David defines as a man of integrity. Now, a promise. Hmm. What is there? Are there any qualifiers on the promise? Well, as we dig through Scripture and we, we, we look at this concept, there are some qualifiers on a promise. Well, Randy, you just said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you're going to make a promise, keep it. Yes. Um, but the type of oath that, that David is talking about is a true and valid oath, not a personal or private feeling uh, that might come to you when you're caught up in the motion, the moment of excitement. Okay, um, perhaps you've seen this, perhaps not. There you are, and 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 at church or a large event, and somebody is up front and he gives an invitation. Perhaps this was when you came to Christ and you got up and went forward, and you look around. And, and your friend who you knew wasn't listening or really interested is going forward too because everybody in the row is going forward, okay? And, and before you know it, they're down there and they've made a commitment or a promise and, and they were just caught up in the moment. Uh, you know, there are those times, every now and then you hear about somebody who says, I'm going to adopt this class at this underprivileged or low-performing school. And I'm going to promise you that if you graduate from high school, I'm going to send you to college. I'm going to pay for your college because they think it is such a great idea and it is such a motivator. It is such a good thing. Um, and, and what they're really doing is hoping they've made enough money in life to be able to do that. But there's not a guarantee. They're just making promises that they hope will come true. David is saying, you make an oath. It needs to be a reasoned and a rational oath that you have thought through. Not an emotional moment. Not a warm fuzzy that you suddenly think, oh, this will be great. I'm going to make this promise. No, it has to be one that you have thought through. Okay? Swearing on a stack of Bibles. I swear on a stack of Bibles. That's not what David's talking about. David is talking about making a promise that you have contemplated and thought through. Um, throughout Scripture, we see uh, these, these oaths are not, quali- are not, they don't stick if the person is under undue influence, if they're drinking, or, you know, all of these types of things. You can't hold them to that oath. But the oath that David says, you've thought about it. You've committed to it. You've seen it through. 
Now, if you are in agreement with those things, you make an oath concerning such things as your word. Your word is your bond. You have to see it through. If you confess the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you cannot turn away from him. Okay? Yes, I've got plenty of friends I remember who were caught up in the moment. Those things, they just made a, an exterior confession. Their hearts were not really changed by the things of Christ. They were caught up in the moment. What about those who, who face persecution in life? Now, in our world today, we don't really face persecution in this country to the point of death. But there were times throughout, you know, there are countries in our world today, and there are times throughout history where people faced death, recant your faith, or face death. Now, probably the most famous time of this was something known as the Donatist controversy back at the end of the 3rd and beginning of the 4th century. So we'll have a little history lesson here because I know your Donatist theology is a little rusty. Okay, So Emperor Diocletian, at the end of the 3rd century, orders a persecution of a variety of groups because there are bad things happening in the empire. There's famine, there's pestilence, and the group that he particularly wants to persecute and punish for these would be Christians. So he sends out this edict that says, you are, uh, Christians are free game. If you've got the resources, you go and kill them because they're at fault for all these, these plagues and pestilence that we're having. Well, not everybody took it seriously except the group in North Africa. And as we learned in Sunday school today, that was one of the hubs of Christianity, North Africa. Uh, But North Africa had a strong Roman administrative structure and governance, and they had the capability to carry out his order to kill Christians. So during these persecutions, any Christian who renounced Christianity and turned over any writings, Christian writings that they had, and made a proclamation of faith to the Roman gods or the Roman emperor could live. And if you didn't do those things, they would kill you. So what happened was you had a lot of Christians who renounced their faith, turned over any writings that they had, especially the pastors, because the pastors were the ones who had most of the writings. Okay, now we're not talking about the Bible yet, because it was it was still the, the canon was still being formed, but they would turn over their writings and they would survive. Now, part of their mentality was, yeah. I believe in Jesus, but what good am I going to be as to the church if I'm dead? So I will take this path and turn over my texts, and I will renounce faith so that I might live kind of underground, and when the persecution stop, I can come back and live my faith again. Well, there were those who did it that way, and then there were those who said, no, I stand for Christ no matter what happens. And they paid the ultimate price, and they were killed in the persecution. Well, after, um, uh, after this persecution died down at, at the death of the Roman Empire, Christianity began to build back up again in North Africa. And about the first decade of the 4th century, churches were being restored, uh, believers were coming back out into the open, and those clergy who had renounced their faith or burn their books or whatever, were now coming back to the churches that were being formed again and saying, hey, I'm here again. I'm going to be your pastor. And 
there weren't that many pastors left at that time uh, because a lot of them had been killed or a lot of them ran off into hiding. So a lot of the churches were saying, okay, come on back and be our minister. So at the Edict of Milan, which said Christianity is officially recognized uh, within the Roman uh, Empire, a lot of clergy were coming back. And remember, they had renounced their faith in order to stay alive. And some within the church went, I'm not sure that's a good thing. How real was their faith if they weren't willing to stand for it? Well, along comes a guy named Donatus. And he had been, he was one who had not renounced his faith. And he was elected Bishop of Carthage in, uh, from 1315 to 1355. And he ended up as the primary spokesman saying, you know what? Those guys who renounce their faith should not be allowed back into the church as leaders. In fact, if they have been allowed back, everything that they did doesn't count for anything. So think about that for a moment in the sacramental area. Every time that they gave the Lord's Supper, it, it said that it didn't count. Every couple that they married, they were not married in the eyes of the Lord. Every time that they baptized somebody, that baptism didn't count as if, you know, it would somehow my involvement would discount the work of the Lord in somebody's life. Well, th- this is what is going on here. And they, but those who wanted them back said, oh, there's forgiveness. And this was a controversy that split the church. And the church stayed separate long after the issue no longer mattered. After all those pastors were dead, after all those things had happened. So when we look at this, we say, well, I've received Christ as my Lord and Savior. He has changed my life. What am I willing to do to stand and declare that? What if persecution would hit me? And I'm not saying that, that we're going to face uh, the, the point of death in this culture for our faith. What about in a group of people that's making fun of Christians? Do you remain silent? What, in a, what if you're in a discussion and people are falsely representing Christianity? Do you remain silent? It's like, oh man, if I open my mouth, I'm just going to get beat up. So I'll just sit back here and be quiet. Mm, that's not denying your faith, but that's not standing firm and fulfilling your commitment as a believer. Think of the three guys in the Old Testament who chose to go into the furnace rather than break their faith. Who was there with them in the furnace at that time? Jesus. Jesus. If you're, you need to be utterly consistent. You don't amend what you say. You don't alter your loyalty. I belong to Christ. He has given all that he was for me. So I can't turn from him, even in the small things. So David says, are you a person who keeps your commitment? Are you a person of integrity? Now, the last one here is right at the end, verse 5. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. Now, the verse is pretty much straightforward in what it says, but it applies to more things than just loaning out money. It applies to an entire concept of money and an understanding of it, the right approach to money. Now, we don't talk much about money here at Central. Uh, unless it's a topic within the passage. We don't have a stewardship Sunday. We don't have a big pledge drive every year. Um, 
we kind of say, hmm, we trust the elders and the deacons to be wise with making up the budget, uh, with where the dollars go. We publish information in the folder every week so you know how much is coming in and how much is going out and how much the debt is. And um, if you ever have a question about where dollars go, you just pick up the phone and say, hey, Randy, I saw this in the budget. What does this mean? I said, I don't know. Talk to Libby. And she'll answer it, okay? But you can always get it. You, you can always get information. We, we're just, you know, uh, the, the church is not here to, uh, to hoard money. Uh, yes, we have some money sitting in funds that are designated for certain programs that may have yet to come to fruition or certain things uh, for certain missions. But we try to be wise and we try to be prudent with the dollars that we're entrusted with. We're not a bank. We're not a business, we're a ministry. It's a very different understanding of it. Um, so every now and then we just remind everybody about like the progress of the debt and how we're doing and you can just always see that. Uh, I think we list the, the, the debt every quarter about the progress that we're making and there are certain milestones when we come to the debt. And I'm just, we don't usually talk about money, but today it's in the passage. Um, you know, when we get below a million, you know, I can wrap my mind around something less than a million. A million dollars is not in my world, okay? Maybe yours, but not in mine. Um, we're almost down to 700. In fact, we're probably the end of this month we'll be at seven, less than 700. There's going to be a time where we're going to stand up and say, we've got to crank it out and finish it early. And that, that day is yet to come. But uh, we make progress on it. Each year we put more in than what we simply pay every month because we want to be out of debt as fast as we can. Well, you know, the, the, there's the old quip that the, what you should give till it hurts. No, we don't believe that. You give until it feels good. Okay, give till it feels good. That's what we believe. Well, the godly man here is ethical in the way that he uses money, ethical in the way that he understands money, ethical in the way that he gives his money away. The concern in the verse is not exclusively charging interest, but the main issue in verse 5 is really what happens when greed eclipses justice. When greed eclipses justice. Now in the Old Testament, it was prohibited to charge interest to another Jewish person. It was prohibited. You could lend them money, but you could not charge interest and make money from another Jewish person. Now, in Nehemiah chapter 5, um, that's, that's one of the reasons we see this. In Nehemiah chapter 5, uh, there was a tax, and all the Jews had to pay it. But there were some wealthy Jews who, were, who had a lot of money, and they were charging interest, loaning, it, loaning money to people so they could pay the tax. And in fact, it says we had to, uh, Nehemiah 5, uh, 4 and 5, we had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields. So they were complaining to Nehemiah that, that you know, we're just, getting, uh, we're just getting financially beat up here on every side. We've got to pay the tax. We've got to pay interest from our own people. This is unjust. So the godly man considers his neighbor in the way that he handles his resources. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's not wrong for man to make a profit. In fact, it's not, Scripture never says that. Uh, scripture is concerned about the one who takes advantage of the unfortunate. They look at the person and says, you know, from Nehemiah, oh, you know, guy's in a pinch. 
He's got to borrow money. So I can charge him more interest than I normally would because he has to have it. It's not an option. He has to have it. That's uh, wrong according to what Scripture says. Scripture tells us to be generous and to be ready to share what we have and what we've been blessed with. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. And these are instructions to, from Paul to Timothy uh, on how to work with people within the church. Remember that. 1 Timothy 6, 17. He says, instruct those who are rich. So there's an immediate understanding. There are going to be rich people in the church. Don't think that there has to be only poor people in the church because only poor people can really love the Lord and really rely upon him. No, there's an understanding there's poor and rich within the church. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So there's not a call to renounce worldly goods in the New Testament. You know, there's... What's his face? <laughs> the rich young ruler. Thank you. Uh, the rich young ruler. Sorry, I blanked on that one. And, and, and he did say, go sell everything that you have. Well, everything that he had was an anchor around him uh, that he was clinging on to. But uh, there is an assumption that there are rich and poor people from every class within the church today. So he's simply telling you how you handle what you have been blessed with, what you have produced. So the person of means, and really, according to the rest of the world, we all are people of means. And the group in the Dominican, uh, they're dealing with people who make 3 and $4 a day. Okay, we, we can burn through 3 or $4 in how many times in a day. So we are certainly people of means within this country. Um, so uh, we realize that we have a gift from God who is generous, he who gives good gifts to us. You know, so what is his expectation for us? It's to use it wisely. Use it in a way that is a reflection of his grace and a reflection of what he calls us to do. We don't have to be guilty about a measure of earthly wealth. We should be guilty if we hoard it, if we don't use it wisely, if we're not generous with it. How many of us have been on the receiving end of other people's generosity in our lives? Oh, man, so many times in my life. So when I think about, gee, can I give this out to somebody? I'm like, what has been given to me? I mean, far more than I can give out. So I, if I have been generous too, I try to be generous to others as well. So he says, instruct them to do good, be rich in good works, be generous, ready to, ready to share. So the godly man has a proper attitude towards what his, is his. I have this as a gift from God. I'm grateful for this, but I am ready to share it. I am ready to make use of what I have for the things of the Lord. This applies to the older man who has stored up things all his life. You know, um, you've done well all your life and you've got all these resources. It applies to you. It applies to the young man at, or woman at the start of their lives, professional lives, when they basically have um, nothing. 
you know? And say, well, I'm just living hand to mouth, okay? Remember, you have been generous too, even though you're living fairly, fairly close to the vest. It really applies to the young people. And you think, well, they don't have anything. Ah, it's up to us to teach them from the very start. Do they give of what they make? Do they, uh, are they, if they don't have anything, are they willing to put their time into being generous if they don't have resources? Okay. He doesn't put his money out at interest. This is back to uh, Psalm 15. He says, he doesn't do a bribe. The availability of wealth does not corrupt the one who can go to God's holy hill. It is so easy to be corrupted and say, oh, I've got a safety net of wealth. Mm, yes, but that can be taken away. Anybody remember 2008? Okay. We weren't around in the late, I wasn't around in the late 20s, but 2008 was, people lost a lot of wealth. People who had money stashed away for retirement lost it. Did it come back? In some instances, it did. In other places, it just did not. Do not put your trust in wealth, but use it for the things of the Lord. So let's just review for a moment. The psalm has challenged us on our inner man. Do you examine your heart? What is it like? Is it corrupt or does it desire the things of Christ? What's going on in your thought life? What do you put into your mind? What do you think about when you are by yourself? Does your mind tend towards the things of the Lord or the things of the world? What comes out of your mouth? Our conversation. Is it godly? Is it encouraging? Do you say words to people that build them up? Or are you more likely to tear down? Who are your companions? Who do you join your life to? Who in your most intimate uh, relations are they? Can you trust them? Do they have the same ethics and the same values that you do? Who do you enjoy fellowship with? Are you one who keeps your commitments? How do you handle your resources? You see that in this psalm, it, it, is, it is a display and, and, and God is taking a flashlight into our lives and shining it in the corners of our lives and saying, what's your thought life, life like? Where do you put your resources? And we have to examine our lives because we're the only ones that can answer some of those questions. Now the question that we started with, who can abide in your tent? Who can dwell on your holy hill? If we were just reading that, we might answer the question, well, those whose, whose devotional lives are good, those who are good evangelists, those who are out making disciples, those who go to worship on a regular basis, we might think of those things. But David gives us an ethical challenge here. And, and what is the Christian life supposed to look like? Frankly, we're supposed to live more, more moral lives to a greater morality than the non-believer. And if the non-believer looks at us and says, oh, you're a bunch of goody two-shoes, you, know, you, you don't have any fun, is that a bad thing? I have a lot of fun. How does your life reflect the gospel? Here we have a description of high morality of the believer. It is a way of life for those who are obedient to the Lord. So let's pray. Lord, this is a challenge to us. Uh, and, and the challenge is, is right before us. 
What do our lives look like? What are the innermost parts of us? What do we think about when we're alone? Who do we hang out with? Who do we want to be like? Who do we pattern our lives after? Do they hold the values which, which we say we hold? Are their core priorities the same as your word? Those are challenges to us today, Lord, in a world that uh, does not value these things in the same way that you have laid out before us. Heavenly Father, we pray that we might be able to ascend your holy hill. Now, you have changed our lives by your grace, but it is that work within us, that sanctification process that we have to be a part of, of killing off the old self, of enlivening the new, of doing the things that you call us to, even when they are difficult, even when they are costly. We must do those things because that is the call from you, the one who knows us, the one who loves us, the one who only wants the best for us. Heavenly Father, help us examine our own lives. See where these things apply how we might conform our lives to your word so that in all things we give you praise and glory. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.